Welcome to the New Stewards Podcast, where we speak to believers all around the world, find out what they are doing to combat the changing climate and how their faith drives them in their work. My name is Ilyas, and I have been working in sustainability for over eight years. I believe we were put on this planet as stewards and trustees, or in Arabic, khalifas. In this podcast series, I hope to discover what it means to be a steward on earth and inspire and enable millions of Islamic sustainability leaders. Today, my guest is Nadia Ahmed, who is an associate professor of law and coordinator of the Environmental and Earth Certificate Program at Barry University in Miami, Florida. She holds a law degree in environmental and natural resource law and policy. Her work revolves around different judicial environmental topics, such as sustainable development, environmental justice, advanced renewables, and international investment law. She was also visiting a professor at Yale University, and in 2020, she was co-author on a casebook on environmental justice. Over the years, she has written many different articles on environmental justice and the role of religion in environmental legal norms. Assalamu alaikum. Great to have you on the podcast. Wa alaikum assalam, Elias. It's great to be here. Thank you for, for inviting me as your guest. It's a pleasure. I, I think I'd, I'd like to start with a, a basic question, just to, for people to get to know you. And that is, how did you get started in sustainability? Because you have been in the field for over a decade, I believe. So for me, looking at sustainability issues was a matter of my environment in terms of where I grew up. I grew up in, in, in Florida, surrounded essentially by the ocean as well as swamplands and wetlands. And so being very close to nature all the time in terms of being able to have access to these coastal areas, I've seen over time that the, the natural world has been eroding, especially this, this sea line. And we're also seeing increased pollution. And, and, and also because of my proximity to the ocean, I've also seen the impacts of natural disaster ever since the, the 80s, even till now, there's constant disasters that we are seeing. And so that's really informed and shaped the, the work that I do, because it's not an academic enterprise to me, it's part of my lived experience. Okay, that's that's beautiful. I read an article that there is a change in Miami between what is now the most wanted property, and it used to be beachfront, but due to the changing climate and the rising sea levels, that that mountain areas have become more wanted than beachfront. Is that something that you see happening in your in your life? Yeah, so over time, we're, we're seeing increased beach erosion that is happening. We're also seeing increased pollution. We have also witnessed uh, last summer the collapse uh, of a condo building, a large uh, high-rise building. And so the, the impacts that we are seeing are not subtle, that they are, have very dramatic uh, impacts. And for me, the main campus that I work on is based in, in Miami Shores, which is really just called Miami Shores because it's about three above sea level. And so when when we are experiencing uh, different uh, tidal events, increasing high, in, including high tide, we are we are actually seeing different forms of sea life coming into the shores. So not only do we have flooding into the streets, there's this idea of the canary in the coal mine, which you may have heard about. And so what we have seen, for example, back in 2017, 
was an octopus in a parking lot. And so someone had first thought this octopus was a, a rare find, that perhaps someone had a pet octopus and they had uh, released it. But when they examined it further and they saw what was happening, they realized the octopus had actually come in from the ocean during the high tide uh, and so we are seeing this disconnect as well as a, a convergence of both the natural world as well as the built environment. And so where I live is out in Orlando, Florida. We also see an increased level of lightning in, in different storm events. Just in fact, a couple of weeks ago, there was a, a extreme a storm event that happened and a tree fell on top of my mom's car. Uh, fortunately, alhamdulillah, she was not inside of it. But seeing that these types of... They type of natural disasters are not just dedicated to an extreme type of hurricane or a tornado, but even some type of a funnel cloud or severe weather can happen at any time. And so it really puts us on, on our guard. Yeah, I can imagine. Has it become more frequent throughout the years? So, yes. Yeah, so it not only have the storms become more frequent, they have become more intense. In fact, there has been research done to show that these, these atmospheric dynamics are shifting in terms of patterns. There was research that was also done showing by researchers at Yale University showing that the hurricanes that are happening, for example, were located to areas in, in Florida, South Carolina, Louisiana. But for example, last fall, there was a hurricane that went out to Connecticut. So increasingly going forward, there will be hurricanes that will be these monster hurricanes that will really going anywhere they want in terms of out to New York. The last major storm we saw out, saw out in New York was Superstorm Sandy in 2013. This type of massive storm caused quite a bit of catastrophic damage. But there was one company in, in New York City that still had the lights on after Superstorm Sandy. Can you guess which one it is? Was it a fast food organization? No, so it was actually Goldman Sachs. Really? So Go Goldman <laughs> okay. Sachs, the investment company, had basically built a bunker in downtown New York because they were preparing to protect their financial assets. They wanted to be ready for worst case scenarios. And so being able to be, have a fortification as well as generator when all the rest of the city is out, has no power, Goldman Sachs had power. And so we really need to be preparing for climate change impacts the same way that Goldman Sachs had prepared before Superstorm Sandy. So now after Superstorm Sandy, more companies have started to prepare. But what we are seeing, and this is really what environmental justice focuses on, is that those communities that are frontline communities, whether it's communities that are minority communities, communities, as well as those who are socially, economically disadvantaged, are at the front line of the climate change. And they're not able to have the resources to adapt in the same ways that a company like Goldman Sachs was. Yeah, I, I guess there is a lot of uh, injustice going on in, in that place, right? So not, not everyone can afford a bunker. And, and, and therefore, those who are already privileged can, can protect their assets, protect their welfare. And, and that's not the same for everyone. So you, you made the bridge there to environmental justice. Could you explain what environmental justice actually is before we further dive into that topic? 
So environmental justice has a specific definition, but the way that I look at environmental justice and, and, and what I've also spoken about in my articles looking at the colonial dimensions of environmental justice is that there's one set of environmental laws that exists is, exist so that people who are wealthy, landed, and white have have more access to better water. They have clean air. They also have less soil contamination. The U.S. Environmental Protection Agency has also done research to to document and, and highlight these disparities that occur across different inco- income levels, as well as where there is uh, also issues of, of redlining. So when you're looking at environmental justice, you have environmental justice that is a separate set of environmental protection measures because the regular environmental law that exists exist was not sufficient to protect those who are of a, a lesser socioeconomic status or indigenous groups. And so there's a separate set of environmental rights and protections that were put in place. Back in 1994, President Bill Clinton had codified this through an executive order. And there's also been different work that has been done to make a federal legislation. Countries around the world have already incorporated different aspects of environmental justice, as well as this other area of the law, considering the rights of nature into into their legal framework. The United States is is behind other countries in this respect, but I think we're starting to see more shifts in in movements to having better environmental protection measures. I also see, for example, that the United States is about five to seven years behind the European Union when it comes to issues relating to environmental protection, as, as well as climate change adaptation. So I am hopeful, but the change really comes soon enough. So if, if I understand correctly, there there were basic environmental protection measures, but they were insufficient to cover or protect uh, different communities, especially uh, communities at risk were insufficiently covered. And then there was an additional set of law and, and legislation in America, which well, I guess enlarged the protection and is then called the environmental justice package or environmental justice law. Yes, and so in, environmental justice is essentially more or less a concept still in the United States because there is not federal legislation for environmental justice. There are a few states that have incorporated uh, issues relating to environmental justice into the state framework, but in terms of having robust legislation for it so that it can actually there can be compliance and enforcement with that, that still has not happened yet. Okay. Okay. So okay. I would I would also look at environmental justice as aspirational. Hmm. Yeah, it's a growing field. Could could you give a couple of examples of of those differences in between communities of either privileged communities and and less privileged communities where those laws were important and where it was necessary for that that differentiation to to exist and I, I guess still be developed. Yeah, I, I can give you. Um... I can give you about three examples just to, to show you the, the variations and the gradient of what environmental justice work looks like. The first one, which really drew drew attention to environmental justice, was the Flint water crisis in 2014. The Flint uh, water crisis was the result of the changing of the water source for Flint, Michigan, from the looking at the, the water source so that it w- was changed over to Flint River. And so the change 
change over to the Flint River had a different chemical composition, and the lead pipes that existed within Flint were also not treated with the proper chemicals. If the if the if the water officials had actually put proper chemicals into it, it wouldn't have led to this big problem. And so what happened, though, is that city officials as well as county and state officials denied for a long time that the switch from over to the Flint uh, River for water contamination had led to increased lead levels. And so there was a medical clinic that was actually looking to test the the increased levels of of lead in children who were exposed to this water and were drinking it as well as bathing in it. And so they detected higher levels of lead. And so the the higher lead levels increases neurotoxicity. It also has creates other types of physical uh, ailments. And um and, and just now still there is litigation that has been ongoing. And to have a proper change would be having better water infrastructure in, in Flint, Michigan. And so there is a, a concern for really having to, to change uh, the pipes, but also to protect the, the water there. And Flint, Michigan also did a great job of being able to highlight and bring attention to this issue because the issue in Flint, Michigan happens all over the, the country and all over the world. And what I also saw happening in, in Flint was the convergence of another issue called redlining. What redlining does is that there were specific allocations that were made by by banks to avoid uh, changes during public policy for desegregation so that it made uh, it difficult to get a mortgage to buy a home in areas that were historically african american and this has long-term impacts in terms of wealth disparities as well. And so that's one example of of environmental injustice in in Flint, Michigan. Another example I will give you is the Dakota Access Pipeline and a related pipeline, which is Line 3. So both of these uh, pipelines are are seeking to take fossil fuels, dirty tar sands from from Canada into U.S. markets and then take them out to broader markets. And the the concern, uh, though, is that by having increased levels of fossil fuel production is not really meeting us in terms of the, the, the zero emissions that we are seeking to decrease global warming. And the more immediate concern, though, is for the tribal nations that are located along these pipeline routes, is that they are not going to be able to to have proper access to their their native lands that's part of maybe on reservation lands or other lands that may have been ceded over by treaties, but in which the native uh, tribes still had access to water rights as well as hunting and fishing. And so having these massive pipelines that are taking dirty fossil fuels across long distances exposes them to potential for chemical leaks, as well as the pollution that they uh, endure as a result of the construction. There was a massive protest and outcry back in, in 2000. Uh, 16 and towards the end of administration of President Obama complaining and protesting about this. And what really we saw was horrific in in terms of the the violence that was unleashed against these peaceful protesters. There there was dogs as well as armed uh, police that were were brutalizing and arresting the peaceful protesters. And to, to also contextualize it, this is land that has been stolen from Native Americans. And so there 
really thinking about what are these different global dynamics that are at play between the rights of corporations and the rights of, of individuals and communities and nature itself. And the third example that I wanted to, to give you looks at pollution. In Puerto Rico, there's this, there's a confluence of coal ash that had been collected, and Puerto Rico was used as the dumping ground for all of this coal ash that was uh, collected. And the community in Puerto Rico had protested and done different types of demonstration and removed the coal ash from the community. However, the coal ash still had to go someplace. So the coal ash from Puerto Rico that had that that had to, that was you know that was called on to be removed was actually then transported to an area close to where I am located uh, in Osceola County, uh, Florida. And so what was interesting though is that Osceola County, after Hurricane Maria in 2017, began to serve as the home for a number of of, of Puerto Ricans who were displaced as a result of Hurricane Maria. And so the same coal ash that they had been fighting in Puerto Rico had now been transported to where they had been displaced. And so there is a series of, of public hearings and different types of coordinated action that was happening as a result of the coal ash that also has that has different environmental health impacts. And so all communities all across the, the world are experiencing environmental pollution. Yeah, there seems thank you for those three those three examples. In your, in your explanation, there seems to be a strong link between environmental justice and either equality or equity, depending on, on how you want to define it. Could you uh, dive into that, that overlap a little bit more? Because they seem, they seem to be closely related, and, and especially where, where perhaps environmental injustice is, is often uh, caused to either nature, which, which does not have a voice, or to communities that are less represented or are already, well, perhaps lower, have a lower socioeconomic status. What What is the overlap between those two? And perhaps you could also then explain how to you an optimal framework for environmental justice, what it would look like, because you said it was aspirational. What, what, what are you working towards? So... There has to be a convergence of different movements. So not only are you looking at environmental injustice, we're also looking at concerns towards prison abolition, as well as uh, the the abolition of immigrations and customs enforcement. So there has to be a coalition building done around around the, the prison pipeline, as well as concerns about immigration. And, and the reason I mentioned this is because when Many people are thinking about environmental law, especially from the environmental academic perspective. They may think about you know food labels and how different products are, are being categorized. They overlook the issues that there is massive food insecurity. Uh, millions of people are dying to this day from starvation. Uh, famine is, is is widespread, and so it, it, it's really a matter of not seeing the bigger picture of what is happening. There is, you know, concerns for having renewable energy, but also seeing that the ordinary person is not able to meet their utility bills. Someone is not able to have, for example, looking in Palestine, where where there is concerns about uh, having clean water. And then on the other side, you, you'll see swimming pools all across Tel Aviv. And so these types of disparities that exist in terms of allocations of resources are also important to, to think about. And so 
in an ideal world, there would be a way to redress these issues in terms of, of having this. And so what I have seen as a phenomenon is that as a result of concerns about climate change, you're seeing you're, you're not actually finding solutions to climate change. In fact, what you're seeing is higher levels of incarceration, as well as a congestion that also occurs. And, and this isn't exactly the, the solution. You see a, a, a refugee crisis that, that is exploding in all different corners uh, of, the, of the world. And so there's a, a broader shift that, that is happening. And so what I would like to see is having environmental justice incorporated as the federal legislation in the United States. I would also like to see on an immediate level, there was brought forward a UN resolution for the right to a clean environment, a clean and healthy environment. I'd also like to see the implementation uh, of that because there's a number of protesters as well as activists who are being harmed for, for the work that they are doing to protect the environment. So, so what does that that UN resolution contain? The right to a clean and healthy environment, as, yes. as a universal basic human right. Correct. And so, this right would would not have legal force, say, unless it is adopted by the countries uh, themselves. But what it would do is it creates a framework for for recognizing the harms that that are put forward, as well as addressing issues about this idea of the polluter pay, pays principle. And this is where I think sustainability is is really a crucial part of this conversation, because we have also seen that that laws are inadequate to correcting these environmental problems that we face. And what would be more likely happening is that there's this growing and robust area of private environmental law. And from that area, we're starting to see corporations take on stewardship initiatives. Some of them may have this idea of greenwashing associated with them. But I think increasingly, they're seeing that sustainability is a, is a positive and strong business model. And from that, they're going to be able to really, really build up more profits as well. So looking not just at profits, but also people and planet and, and profits as well. Okay, thank you. Yeah. I understand what you're saying in in where there seems to be a lot of overlap between perhaps the goals for for equal rights movements and and the goals that are behind certain environmental movements, right? It is it is great for someone's health not to have to live besides a, a highway and and having a highway with just clean cars would also be great for the environment. So there there are some alliances to be built in that field. How how could environmental justice be be a common language for those different groups? Because if you, if you look at at society at this day, there is a lot of fragmentation, even between uh, social groups. That if if you look at their missions, seem to have a lot of overlap in what they actually want to achieve. So, yeah, how, yeah, how do you look at those those movements? So I think looking at the different types uh, of movements that we see happening, we're, we're also seeing like a broader coalition of youth mobilization as well as the climate movement. I attended the climate march in, in New York City in 2014. There's about 400,000 people in the streets of New York, and there was millions of people all across the world that were that were protesting. And 
this idea of, of, of gathering as well as protesting is really crucial to the environmental uh, movement because it's not anybody in the halls of power or in the boardrooms wants to actually implement environmental uh, protection measures. This has to be done as it has to be like political will uh, behind it to happen. And this is where I see an inroads and a possibility for Islamic environmental law, as well as coalition building with different types of and forms of faith-based organizations. And so whether it's within like Judaism, Christianity, Islam, uh, Hinduism, Buddhism, uh, Jainism, Taoism, Shintoism, Sikhism, like all the different religions that, that do exist, as well as looking at Aboriginal and, and Indigenous cultures and communities as well, that all of these coalition building that can happening, that there is an imperative and a design that already is in place to having a stewardship of uh, the environment and these different faith traditions that, that exist and are out there. And so there are legal mechanisms that exist for environmental protection, but they have not been sufficient. And so this is where I think there's definitely an inroads for different movements, whether it's for faith and ecology, but also saying that there's a really broad scope of religious law. So it doesn't really matter if you are going to seek environmental protection from a duty-based perspective or a rights-based perspective, because really the outcome essentially would would be would, would be the same. So I think there is important to think about this religious command that exists to protect the environment. And when we look and see how there are concerns about how to protect environmental rights and norms worldwide, we have to think about different ecological perspectives and obligations that do uh, exist. And a really key and core idea behind that is the idea of intergenerational uh, equity. And so I think this is really showing that there's this concern and appreciation for environmental rights. And there is also a nexus between faith and ecology as well, because faith traditions provide these really old and ancient systems, as well as for thinking about how we're going to create different types of modalities and agreements and make them come forward. Yeah, thank you. You you mentioned Islamic environmental law. How is that different from regular environmental law? And and then how can those two enrich each other? So for for example, we're seeing increased uh, levels of environmental degradation as well as human misery that has uh, been happening. And so there are specific types of of commandments that are included within the body of Islamic law that look specifically at ecology. And there's also this countercurrent that also exists against colonization. And we are seeing that there have actually been different international meetings that have been held a number of times. There was a global forum of spiritual and parliamentary leaders that has been held in Oxford, Moscow, Rio, and Kyoto. There was also a Tehran meeting as well. And so all of these gatherings that have been happening have been with leaders, as well as different types of environmental experts and academics, as well as political leaders. And they have been looking at this idea of spirituality and conservation. And so from there, I think that whether they are looking at these these ways, that there is definitely a way to also include and incorporate or really reinvigorate 
the with the Islamic environmental perspective. And this also follows from other faith-based traditions. There is also like a global Catholic climate movement that has been put together by over 250 Catholic organizations. And so this also led to the to what what was more prominently known as the Pope's encyclical, looking at how to actually care for our, our home. And so this this same paradigm and framework, the shift of the paradigm and the potential framework within the Catholic tradition it is also possible within the Islamic tradition as well. And so there are specific environmental or Islamic law principles that look at environmental protection, sustainability, as well as economic uh, development. And so all of these are um, are rolled together more commonly as juristic principles within Islamic law, more frequently referred to as the usul al-fiqh. And so when we look at this, this is like the methodological framework that has been put forward. And so Islam uh, puts forward through the Quran a duty-based approach to Muslims to take care and to protect the environment. And so a number of Muslim-majority uh, countries have also implemented different aspects of Islamic law in, into their governance uh, structure. And what, one of the commandments that we also see from the Quran is this idea to purify nature, and that that if if there is not a purification of nature, it also find, falls into this idea that there's a corruption of the natural uh, world. And so the Quran also emphasizes this idea of being excessive. And if we look at this, we're also going to see that there are that limits in terms of what should be used of nature to only use the, the very minimum that, that you need, even if, for example, when you are doing wudu, you should not be using excess amounts of, of, of water. And so all of this is really working towards creating harmony and na- balance within nature. And so there is also this idea that the problems that we are facing are a result of, of the human condition and that that people have moved away from protecting not only the creatures, but also the air as well. And so that it's important to see that the breath that we draw from, from the air is also considered part of a common property of everyone, not just humans. There's also, there's also, you know, the revelation also indicates that the types of pollution that we are experiencing today, whether it is from, whether it's from smoke or other types of emissions of particulate matter is a type of corruption that that is happening on the earth because it's damaging nature as well as having impacts on, on humans. And so there's this, this failure to achieve, to, to really achieve this goal of having environmental protection, especially Especially in, in countries within like the Middle East, uh, North Africa, as well as South Asia. What we also see happening, for example, is that in a number of countries within the Arab Gulf region, we see a really high per capita uh, carbon footprint. And we also see a significant influence of the oil and gas markets. And so what the idea behind Islamic environmental law and stewardship really emphasizes is to also be influenced by Islam in this, in this endeavor. Thank you. Okay, well, that's that sounds like quite an elaborate framework that is is present within uh, within it, it's Islam, and I, then I guess other Abrahamic religions might have similar concepts. Does Islam give rights to nature? You mentioned it just now. I guess that in the Netherlands, in Europe, it's a, it's a growing movement. How can we give a river, a forest? How can we give them rights so to prevent them from being exploited? Because I think a large part of the environmental problem is the just 
ruthless exploitation of nature and, and seeing it as a thing instead of as a, a living creature. What does Islam uh, say about rights for nature? So what we see happening more broadly as well is seeing that Islam is also following other broader faith-based traditions, whether it's within Christianity or, or Judaism. But what, what Islam is also uh, unique is that Islam also looks this at, the, at the idea of sovereignty. And so this idea is also common in Buddhism. And the idea that in Buddhism, for example, looks at this idea that climate change can also be understood as cravings, delusions, and aversions. And so by building upon specific types of ethical principles for faith-based practitioners, what you will what we will need to see happening is the compassion and concern for all living beings, as well as an, an awareness of the harm that is being done to the natural world. And we need to move away from having this theory-based approach to to nature and actually actualizing it. And so this idea of trying to serve only the self is also partly embedded within Islamic uh, teachings. We also see the idea of the waqf as well in terms of the endowment and this uh, framework that can be set up in terms of for protection. And so, for example, in Norway, where they have uh, set up a, a, a sovereign fund a sovereign resource fund to actually counteract the natural uh, resource curse that happens as a result of high oil and gas uh, production. It actually leads to some economic decline. And so by seeing this, we're also able to see that there is this revolving crisis that is happening and there is a cause and effect uh, to it. And so as a result of that, we really need to move more towards, you know, purity and righteousness, as well as good order. And so by doing that, we can see that there is a, a broader and, and grander notion for nature w within the environment. And it's, it's really changing the way that we're looking at how nature is framed. Yeah, that's interesting. And I think uh, quite necessary. Because at the scale that we are just destroying nature, there will not be much left of it in the future. Speaking of the, the, the Middle East and, and Arabic nations, later this year and, and next year, there will be two more COPs, like two more conferences of the parties, I think 27 and 28. In, in what, what, what message would you, would you give negotiators going there? And in what extent... Could those negotiations be different because they are taking place in in Muslim nations? Because they are in Egypt and in Abu Dhabi. Just speaking from from the top of my head, do you do you do you have hope for those two cops? I have more hope for for those uh, upcoming cops, COP twenty seven and beyond, because I feel as if we don't really have a choice than to be hopeful that there is going to be a shift. I think that increasingly you are seeing a move away from having the rich countries assert their roles. And so there is starting to see more adaptation as well as more vocalization of, of what is needed. I also see that there is, is work that is really also being done for corporate social uh, responsibility. I, I thought it was interesting as well that... Um, in the last COP, one of the highest groups of attendees were from oil and gas companies, that they were essentially there to make sure that nothing was actually done that was 
that consequential. And I, I see increasingly more because the, the COP will be held in the global south, in Cairo and the UAE, that you will have more ability for representatives and leaders and activists from global south countries to be able to attend because of the difficulty, for example, of being able to travel to Europe, whether it was to the UK or to Paris. What you will see is I think that geographic proximity will also cause somewhat of a shift because uh, those who are most impacted by climate change and sea level rise will have more of a voice at the table, just in terms of the increase in numbers that will be present. I also see that there is a role for for uh, Muslim majority countries to also uh, step up in ways that they have not before. And I they also think from an economic standpoint that that these countries, for example, Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates, and, and Qatar, actually recognize that oil is a finite uh, resource. And so over the past uh, several decades, they have actually been converting to renewable energy in ways that the West in, in Europe and the United States has not been. And so you will see entire cities in Saudi Arabia that are constructed for, for to, to run off of renewable energy. And this is not something far-fetched. And in fact, when I go from go from there and come back to the United States, it feels like I'm going back in time. And and I think that from an economic standpoint, they have done this because they actually know that the the economic patterns of of of, of the of, of the West is that that we will not be switching to to renewable energies as as fastly as as we should be. And so they are capitalizing off of this and that they are reserving all of their fossil fuel reserves for export to to our, our countries because they recognize that we are, are not really at, at the brink of sustainability. And you will also see, for example, that there are countries that are funding that are funding environmental work in the United States to limit oil and gas production in the United States. And so there's different market pressures that, that are at play. But I think that in the same way the Middle East has been at the forefront of the, the energy revolutions in terms of being able to really provide petroleum, natural gas to all corners of the world, it is also working to develop the technologies for renewable energy, whether it's different types of biofuel or adaptable solar technologies. All of this is happening because they know from an economic standpoint, that's that's what they need to, to be doing. What I would argue is that they also need to be doing this from an Islamic perspective as well. It also, it also gives them a, a broader support for those types of initiatives. So, so do you think... And I'm not aware to what extent religion has played a role or, or moral frameworks have played a role at earlier COPs. But do you think that, that religion will play a more significant role during the negotiations as perhaps a counterbalance to economic actors? I don't know if I would go that far in saying that the religion would pay, play a role a role in terms of the, the negotiations. What I do see happening is that there will be a reorientation 
of within the negotiations as a result of the proximity to this emphasis on religion. And so I think there will be a different type of ideological ground as a result of the COP being in, in Cairo. So for example, you're also going to see concerns about self-determination and sovereignty. You're also going to see concerns about scarce human and natural and financial resources in Cairo in ways that you would not see, for, for, for example, in Glasgow or Paris. And so I think seeing that is going to, to lead to a different type of construct. And, and I think also there, there's when, when you are traveling and you're, you're not in your time zone or, in, or you're in a far different uh, time zone, I think that there will be a more sense of home as, as well in terms of not having the massive jet lag that they would have, for example, in, 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 if, uh, if traveling to, to different parts. So I think that may also play somewhat uh, into it as well. But I also see that there's a situation si- situating of faith uh, and sustainability that that will be happening. But I think that this this is something really moving towards ethical practices. Is that you are going to see the movement more towards the rights of nature. And this is where I think this uh, movement and development of the frameworks within Islamic environmental law can also enter the conversation because there are different dynamics within uh, world religions. And so I think this is where you are also able to build off of existing statutory, administrative and constitutional laws relating to the environment. So uh, are are you also saying that Perhaps a more perhaps nation overlapping language within those negotiations could be that that Islamic environmental law because it, it's it's above the sovereignty of the state and 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 therefore overlaps state interests or is that am I misunderstanding? No, precisely. I, I so I think that what what I would say is that there's like structural principles within Islamic environmental law, and so there is this idea of sovereignty as well. So I, I think that, for example, there's this sense that that these environmental laws are coming from the West, that they're trying to limit they're trying to limit development and economic growth in certain regions. But I think if they reoriented and seeing that these principles of environmental protection are actually embedded within Islamic law already and have been there for centuries, I think that that shift is important. And, and I think that it's a matter of just being able to know the tradition of, of environmental law within Islamic law, that that is important. And I also think that you're going to see different countries developing this framework in, in different ways. But for uh, for countries that they can also use this to do coalition building, and so if, if there's if they're looking at conflict, I think that religion offers a way of of, of conflict resolution in in not just concerns about how to have best practices, but also how to to improve and understand the broader terrain. What is important for what's important for the Western negotiators to know ahead of time before going over to Egypt and UAE? Is, is there something that they should be aware of or could should take special interest in? So I think for... So for... So for Western negotiators that are traveling over there, I think that they have, most of them probably developed some sense of cultural competency, you know, through through the work that they have done. But I think if they really want to, to, to be able to be successful, they have to give more than they have been giving in the past. 
and a lot of that from what I have seen and what I have observed is more more or less this the sense of asserting their will. And I think that there has to be this this concern and recognition that how much of Europe and the the, the United States have and Canada as well have really benefited and been enriched from natural resource extraction. And, and I think that we just have to think about how we go about and, and reorient that discussion. So even to this day, I will hear that in 1973, there was an oil embargo that was put in place. And it really this idea of like, how dare they? Like, how dare these Arab countries take it upon themselves and like limit production to our to our countries that they that they change the the rates that we have to pay. And so that oil embargo actually led to high levels of renewable energy development and deployment. It wasn't because the countries were getting together and looking at sustainability in Stockholm. That happened as a result of market pressures. And so we're seeing that problem happening right now with the situation in Russia and Ukraine. And so there's their countries are being forced to think about where are they getting their uh, energy from. And so as a result of that, I think it's forcing them to innovate. And so that's what I think we will see more of and, and seeing, you know, where are really the problems and, and conflicts that, that exist and where the solutions can come from. I'm looking more forward to the to the COP, knowing uh, knowing this context, and I'm quite interested to see how the how the, the the presence of well more southern southern nations will will also change the the discussion. I guess the 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 speech of what was her her name, the Prime Minister of Barbados, the Mia Motley. I think I think well, that was such an impactful speech because she came from a from a region of the world where climate change was is already reality, and now with with it being closer to to them, I, I guess we will see much more uh, of those type of speeches during the COP as well. Yeah, and I think Please. that wor- words and ideas have power, and 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 that's why I think Prime Minister Mia Motley's speech had so much resonance with so many people. Is that that she really emerged as a leader for, from from that COP, and and, and since then. A lot of people have, you know, gone back to doing things that the, the way they have. But I think that there has also been more organizing that, that has happened. And so, when I go back and look at the oil embargo, it was really a type of unionization that that was happening by as as, as sovereign countries, but by these OPEC countries, is that they were banding together and production that was happening it was really a labor movement in, in some ways. And so, I think the same will also be happening among global South uh, countries in, in in terms of the, this reorientation that needs to happen in terms of putting forward conditions. And I think that because of supply chain issues and other concerns about inflation, I think that it's going to be harder for Western nations to assert themselves in the way that they have in the past. And if we look right now, that the 21st century is really the, the economic development of Asia, whereas the next century will be the economic development of Africa. And so this, this shift in economics is also going to impact the ways that countries and regions are looking and responding to environmental crises is that the problems that are happening they won't hold because they 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 make life so un- untenable that it will it will have to naturally correct course. 
thank you for your for your time for your information you've really opened my eyes to to some of these issues where can people go to read more about islamic environmental law so we're working to develop a handbook of islamic environmental law hopefully it should be released by next year but i think that I, I think it's important for for the research to be done. So people have to do do it on their own. That they will see that they have to go to archives, they have to go to libraries to do the research, because the the body of Islamic environmental law does exist. It's just on dusty bookcases. So I think that that people have to do the research. I think that there's a, there's a robust literature that is out there. It just has to be un- uncovered. And any book recommendations? We look forward to your book releasing next year. And any other recommendations for people perhaps preparing for the COP? So I think I think looking at like Islamic and environmental law, I can give you one uh, book recommendation, uh, or actually a, a couple of them. One, for example, is looking at the idea of it. It's it's a book that that has come out relating to rediscovering revival in Islamic environmental law. Back to the future of nature's trust. This has been put forward uh, by Samira Edaline. Ed- She's uh, based out of Morocco, and there is also another book that has come out called um, Environmental Law in Arab States by Oxford University Press. I would recommend though those two resources. Okay. I will I'll put the links in the in the episode description. Well, thank you so much for your time. I uh, I would really like to to do another episode when the the COP is is a little bit closer to just have a have a, a look forward at what is going to happen, uh, inshallah. So uh, thank you for your time. I hope to speak to you soon and have a, a great Ramadan. Okay, thank you. Assalamualaikum. Thank you for listening to this episode of the New Stewards Podcast. I hope it has been both beneficial and encouraging. Please take the time to reflect on how you can live in a more sustainable way. God willing together, we can build a better future for ourselves, the Ummah, both now and in the future, and be rewarded in the hereafter. And God knows best. If you want to share any reflections, please send an email to newstewardspod at gmail.com. That's all one word. Wassalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.